We're going to start today's session with a conversation with Parun Chadha, co-founder and CEO of Passageways. Parun, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. Pleasure being here. So, uh, Parun, let's introduce our audience to you. You've uh, bootstrapped a successful company from Indiana, and we love to hear stories and showcase and highlight stories of entrepreneurs who are doing their entrepreneurial work in off-center geographies. So it's a, it's a great case study that I wanted to highlight for our audience. So tell us a little bit about Passageways. What do you do and uh, how did you get started? Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> so yeah, uh, you know, this goes back to 2003. And uh, you know, this is a company that uh, I co-founded uh, with Christopher Beltran uh, right after school. Both of us were at Purdue, and we really were uh, just trying to figure out if we can, you know, st uh, start down the path of creating a platform for collaboration. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, I was going through the MBA program, and there was a business plan competition uh, on campus called Burton D. Morgan. And, you know, as you get more serious about your business plan, we decided to pitch at the business plan competition. And uh, we placed second, we won some money, and that's how we really started to get more serious about it. And when we graduated, we started with passageways as our, you know, uh, jobs at that time. And then, you know, led on to become a career. And now, you know, it's uh, certainly, uh, you know, it's become a calling at this point, you could say. So, Parun, uh, could you talk about, you said collaboration software. So let's double click down mm -hmm. on that uh, topic and, and tell us what you saw when you started the company and decided to do a collaboration software company. What was the landscape and where did you find the gap and, and what did you decide was the opportunity and how did you flesh it out? Absolutely. So, you know, I'll take you back to 2003. This was when Yahoo was a big, uh, you know, provider tech uh, company at that time, much like, you know, what you'd say Facebook or, um, you know, even Uber and some of these uh, newer companies that we all talk about uh, today. Yahoo and eBay actually really were the two big companies. Um, we saw that, you know, collaboration, uh, you know, um, was happening in the consumer world uh, loosely speaking, started to show as portals or views that people needed to aggregate all the information, uh, you know, that you may be interested in. And, you know, that led to us thinking about could we apply the same concept within the enterprise. And we were very early, and I must say, you know, uh, in terms of just starting to think about it, prior to that, there was a notion of an intranet which keeps everybody on the same page within an enterprise. What we did was we started to really get more serious about, you know, not just piecing together information, but also actually enabling secure collaboration within the enterprise. And, you know, it started out with, you know, some file sharing, some messages, you know, some backend for instant messaging and all of that, and led on to several iterations, and we continue to actually really, you know, uh, works through that as, uh, you know, the, the secure collaboration space is uh, evolving. And how did you validate what for you? Who were your early customers? How did you get this in the hands of validated users? 
Absolutely. So I think that's a fascinating story, and I think that may be one of the unique things about us. Uh, you know, we were on college campus, went through the the, the regular channel, well established channel of a business plan competition. Uh, but somewhere along the way, my finance professor, Professor Sullivan, she asked us to go talk to the local credit union, and their name is Purdue Federal Credit Union. Um, and I had no sense of what credit unions are all about. And, you know, um, I went and I pitched, actually. This was just a phone call I made uh, from the college campus at that time. I, You know, I didn't even have, uh, you know, uh, access to a cell phone. And, you know, they were, I guess they were intrigued enough to, uh, you know, call us over. And me and Chris, we went and we met with the credit union. And when they looked at the software, in a quick three meetings, we found ourselves in the boardroom uh, where the credit union not only wanted to actually buy the software that we were creating, and mind you, at that time, the software was pretty, you know, unfinished, uh, but they also wanted to invest in the company because they wanted to make sure that, um, you know, we are around. And um, it went very well with, the, with, you know, what they are all about, making a difference in the community. So this was a unique experience where it went from a, finance professor pointing me to a local, uh, you know, credit union, which is nothing but a community, you know, financial services provider. And uh, and then, you know, in the boardroom, uh, there was an interesting, uh, you know, thing that happened. The chairman of the board at that time, uh, of course, the board had a lot of people from Purdue. And I believe Professor Sullivan was actually really the chairman of the board. So she wanted to see if we could actually find traction within the credit union, and if we actually ended up rising, she'd already looked at the business plan. So we had a, a pretty smooth board meeting, I would say, uh, but that is how it all came together. And was there specific functionality requirements of the credit unions that you were able to address? Absolutely. So. They had a budget in mind. Uh, so this was a budgeted item. They just couldn't find the right solution. They wanted to make sure that they don't go around, uh, you know, the regular beaten path of let's invest some money in, say, SharePoint or something like that. SharePoint had just started to show up from Microsoft at that time. So uh, they invested $30,000 in the solution. They gave us $100,000 in seed capital. And their only requirement was that we, we want to create an environment which is role-based. Essentially, uh, when a teller logs in, he or she should be able to get to all the information that makes them very functional. And if they want mm -hmm. to collaborate with the back office, let's say the branch manager or somebody back in the corporate, they should be able to do that without leaving the screen mm -hmm. in front of them. Um, you know, if you think about a, a retail environment in, in a bank or a credit union, uh, and by the way, we have about uh, 700 banks and credit unions as customer today. So mm -hmm. we've stuck to that niche. That niche has been a big part of our, you know, uh, ongoing success. Um, you know, the, the fact is that you can't leave the face of the customer when you're talking to somebody. It's not cool for a teller to turn around, go find help. So one of the interesting things that we, uh, you know, did up front was we actually just shadowed a lot of, you know, tellers and, you know, saw how that interaction with the customer actually really happens. And Got typically... It. They need to pull in some documents. They need to, you know, uh, talk through some products and, you know, reference some procedures. But every now and then, you know, there could be like a fraud that they may suspect, and they need to contact somebody in the risk department without really kind of just, you know, making it obvious. 
and, and those were the interactions that they wanted us to attempt as a second phase. The first, you know, get everybody on the same page in a role-based environment. Secondly, start to work through the workflows that are specific to their environment. That's why we started out with a, with a portal platform with a core set of functionality, which is all about communication and collaboration, and then subsequently start to build those specific workflows, which were very vertical specific. And um, were you, with, based on that experience, were you already convinced that you were going after the banking and credit union market, retail banking and credit union? Well, you know, I uh, now it's common wisdom that you, you know, you you think big and then you find a niche and really go right. after that niche. Back in the day, yeah. it wasn't this clear. You know, clearly we've all evolved. Uh, you know, when it comes to the process of innovation. But what I found surprising, uh, certainly I didn't grow up, uh, you know, I, I grew up in India, so I certainly didn't have much of a, you know, knowledge about, you know, how the financial landscape is organized there. There are 6,000 credit unions and about, you know, uh, 6,500 community banks roughly in U.S. alone. That's a mm -hmm. big number. So when we started mm -hmm. to go after, you know, this market, uh, what we realized is that, you know, um, years later, we still haven't actually made a significant dent. Uh, now, a lot yeah. of these trade unions and community banks are much smaller. So this was a big enough niche for us to actually go after. And that was sort of, you know, um, how we started out. And we stayed true to that decide. for several first years. So you did consciously decide to go after this niche even then? We did actually. So for several years, like good, uh, you know, six, seven years in the journey, if there was a lead that came through, through a referral or through an employee going from one place to the other, we uh, actually really just actively refused uh, taking that on. We felt that that's mm -hmm. going to be a distraction. In part, motivated by the fact that uh, we had a, a rich pipeline of ideas coming from this vertical. And we didn't want to actually really go away from that. Our goal was to dominate the financial services market. We figured that's a pretty big part of the economy. It's about, you know, 13, 14% of the economy. Uh, and if we can actually really just be very good at that, there will be a time when we can diversify. Uh, and as, you, as we all know now, in 2009, when the financial crisis happened and that hit us, that was the perfect time for us to start thinking about diversifying outside. So from 2003 to 2009, you focused on banking and credit unions, community banking and credit unions. Absolutely, yep. And how uh, revenue-wise, how far did you get with that strategy? Uh, we crossed about, you know, three and a half uh, million. I think we were right around uh, 3.5. Um, In 2009. And, you know, um, yeah, and one of the interesting things about where we were, we took 100,000 in seed capital, but we've been profitable right from year one. We got 10 sales in year one. We had about $300,000 in uh, revenue bookings uh, in year one. And we continued to, uh, you know, and we ended up on the Inc. 500 list. Uh, you know, Facebook reminded me this morning that we were on the Inc. 500 list back in 2008. Uh, uh, you know, this was literally the day when we celebrated that in our offices. Uh, but the mm -hmm. fact is, you know, because we were bootstrapped and we were actually really focused on the business model, we are trying to sustain ourselves rather than burn some external capital. Uh, you know, we found ourselves to be fiscally very disciplined. 
And, you know, when it came time to look at, you know, diversification, our first thought at that point was, uh, can we start to prove some diversification, uh, you know, areas, some verticals mm -hmm. that I could really jump out before we went out to, you know, take money. But with the Inc. 500, uh, you know, uh, listing, there was plenty of capital available. We just wanted to be sure about, you know, where we are headed and how much money and, and, and so on. And what were your conclusions based on that assessment of where do what what diversification do you want external financing or not? What conclusions did you come to at that point? So one of the key things that you know I would encourage your audience here uh, to think about is that one should not take money for you know nearly as long as you don't need to. Uh, taking money is very expensive, and you know. Um, even though I know around us there is a culture of celebrating when people raise money, I think there mm -hmm. should be a culture more of celebrating when you can avoid taking money. My example is a good one. Up until, you know, literally two months ago when we took some capital, uh, we have been bootstrapped. And, you know, I got a chance to buy back my both my partners. So, you know, when we got to about, you know, 70, 80 employees and, you know, uh, as we are nearing, you know, some good revenue milestone, 1,000 customers, uh, you know, I was still completely in control, uh, and we never took money. Why? Because the fundamental business plan was, you know, uh, was cooking. We were generating uh, profits, and we just reinvested our profits every year. Now, could I do it differently thinking back at it? I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, could have, would have that, that you can actually get into. But I think on balance, the fact that we continue to be bootstrapped, really built an organization that's been very sturdy and continues for every single year in our history. We've grown and we've turned a profit. And I think that's something that's, you know, that you don't find often enough. So, you know, if people in the audience want to ask me questions about that, and there are several other such companies that I've seen, uh, you know, and I've met founders and owners, we all, Feel that this is not a this is not an easy path, but certainly uh, you know a path that uh, you know is worth considering seriously for most organizations. So, in one million by one million bootstrapping has always been one of the core uh, tenets because you know just by the mission, as you can see, one million by one million, one million companies are not going to get funded. We acknowledge the fact that over ninety nine percent of the entrepreneurs out there do not get funded, and we are committed to supporting entrepreneurs who are bootstrapping. We constantly encourage people to bootstrap. Most businesses out there have to be built as bootstrap businesses. They don't qualify as fundable businesses. They don't have the trajectory of hyper growth. They don't have the super large TAM. So, so most businesses out there have to be built the way you have built your company. Um, so your point is very well taken and, and very much in tune with the ethos of this organization. Now, um, let me ask you a couple of questions here. Mm -hmm. um, you, you haven't answered my diversification question. So at this point, are you still doing banking and credit union, or have you opened up other verticals? We have opened up at this point. We are, uh, you know, routinely adding maybe five to ten customers. Uh, on, uh, a typical month for us is about, you know, 30 to 40 customers. And we see five to ten customers come from higher ed, another, you know, a few coming from healthcare, 
about eight to 10 coming from non-profit. In fact, recently what we are starting to see is more than 50% of our customers are coming from outside the financial services industry. Uh, not only that, uh, they've also diversified geographically as well. So this time round, you're not doing a vertical specific expansion. You're basically going after whatever is coming to you. I think that's a good question. So let me actually get into you know, some more detail on this. So in 2009, we started to look outside the financial industry. Uh, yeah. You know, when the iPads came around, a lot of our customers were using our enterprise portals for their board meetings as well. So we started to build a cloud-based specific portal for the board meetings. Uh, okay. And now we have two products. So Ensemble is the enterprise collaboration and Onboard uh, is the board collaboration software. That board collaboration software, uh, you know, board meeting is uh, is board meeting depending on you know um, you know how you look at it. But you know, from a system standpoint, um, you know, public companies are slightly different than you know private companies and nonprofits. But uh, you know, fundamentally, you know, there is a lot of uh, similarity between how board meetings are conducted. So we naturally started to diversify into other verticals. And we also started to, you know, set up resellers in other countries, and now we have an office in UK and Canada as well. We have direct presence in other uh, geographies. So we diverse, diversified both on the product itself, uh, you know, so ensemble and onboard. We also started to really get into other geographies. And lastly, I would say, you know, as we evolved the software, we went from diversifying out of the on-prem environment into the cloud and mobile environment. Those were the three things that happened post-2009. So in terms of the two products, would it be fair to say that your collaboration software is primarily sold to the banking and uh, uh, credit union segment and the board meeting software is outside of that segment? Um, I think, uh, you know, that was the case for the longest time. At this point, both our products are actually, you know, vertical agnostic. Okay. So now uh, bring us um, bring us to the competitive landscape issue a bit. Uh, of course, you know, there's a lot of collaboration software out there, lots of stuff going on in that sector. How do you, um, how have you navigated the competitive landscape and where do you sit now given the level of activity in the industry? Yep. So, um, you know, certainly on the enterprise collaboration side, there are several, uh, you know, um, several different competitors that we run into. SharePoint is still around. Huddle out of UK is actually really a big one that we started to see, uh, you know, regularly, uh, pretty well-funded company. And then we mm -hmm. also see some smaller, uh, you know, cloud-based, uh, you know, uh, takes on enterprise collaboration. Uh, again, uh, we've built our software, uh, you know, growing up in the financial services industry. So when it comes to regulations, you know, healthcare and financial and higher ed, these are the industries where we have a very well differentiated product, much more so than any other that we find. Uh, so, you know, how you grow up, you start to see the world in that that way, and you know, you really have certain strengths that stay with you, and I think that's, uh, you know, pretty core to how we fit in the enterprise collaboration space. In the board collaboration side on board, our main competitor is Diligent, uh, and they've done a few acquisitions uh, lately, and then NASDAQ, uh, NASDAQ actually acquired a company by the name of Board, board Vantage. These are the two main competitors. I think it's a, 
it's a pretty clear, uh, you know, differentiation. Both these softwares are, uh, you know, the companies are, you know, well-established, and uh, but both these offerings are, uh, you know, legacy as you, as you would define today. Uh, you know, they're not cloud-first or, you know, mobile-first kind of uh, setups, and they cater more to the Fortune 500 companies. We came in, you know, uh, wanting to disrupt that, and we found a lot of success in just, you know, working with uh, startups, uh, working with, you know, um, private companies. Uh, certainly, like I said, you know, the banks and trade unions, uh, you know, uh, are still the mainstay. And, and at this point, we are well past a thousand customer mark uh, to really kind of just you know uh, put this into perspective. So, the the landscape is shaking out, uh, you know, on the board side as there are some enterprise providers and diligent board vantage, and we have our fair share of enterprise customers, but we really are becoming dominant when it comes to the mid market and the SME space. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned that you've recently taken some funding. Can you take us mm-hmm. through um, the thinking behind at what point you decided to take this funding? What was the revenue level? What were the metrics? And why at that point did you decide to bring in investors? Because you have navigated very well for a long time in an organic uh, bootstrap basis, and you're profitable, you're growing nicely. What What is the thinking? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, so I struggled with this one, as you can imagine, because, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, through these headwinds, I stayed away from taking funding. One of the challenges that we had, uh, and I think this is something to be consciously aware of if you go down the bootstrap path, you have to make sure that the core founding team and the, you know, leadership team, if you have an employee pool, everybody is committed to that path. Sometimes what happens is that different, uh, you know, uh, execs on your team, uh, you know, certainly when it comes to co-founders, they may have a different trajectory in mind. In our case, I had another co-founder with me, uh, Christopher. Uh, until Chris and I were co-piloting this, bootstrapping was the only way to go. Once Chris actually left, I found there were two gaps. One, we really started to uh, first find a lot of growth opportunities. So for the first time in you know in a uh, in all this while, I found myself really uh, staring at an opportunity where uh, you know taking money would accelerate us many times over. Okay, so that was one mm-hmm. consideration. Number two, I found that you know as we got closer and closer to a 10 million run rate mark, uh, the stake became much much higher. I needed more uh, eyes on this ball. Why? Because there is some strategic advice that you get when people, uh, you know, uh, contribute capital, more formal governance structure uh, with a board meeting and such, and that allows you to think strategically about, you know, the long term as well. Um, You know, so these two considerations really got me closer to considering this. And as we, you know, as the revenue started to climb and the growth rate was, you know, uh, looking very healthy, there's plenty of capital that's available. Uh, you know, this is a good time to raise money if you find yourself in that boat. Why? Because the market is actually really flush with a lot of capital being available. Certainly, if you show that you have traction and there's certain repeatability in your business. Once those unknowns are out of the way, you start to see that you start to attract good, you know, uh, investors. 
you also really, um, you know, find that that additional $5 million or, you know, $10 million in capital is going to allow you to, uh, you know, grow, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in ways that you're just not going to be able to uh, justify, uh, you know, if you continue to bootstrap. And Parun, did you have to uh, buy Chris out or did Chris stay in for the long haul in terms of his share of holding pattern? Uh, so, so Chris uh, was a, a non-operating, you know, owner for a couple of years. And Purdue mm -hmm. Fed was also, has always been non-operating. Um, you know, so over the years, so actually just two years ago, I got a chance to really, you know, think through the future, and there were some big bets to be made. Before those were to be made, uh, you know, it came down to a decision of who all are going to be in the cap table. And uh, I, uh, you know, uh, converted some of their equity into loans, but I did actually buy them out, uh, both of them. Uh, Purdue Fed also had some, you know, pressure from the regulators because they, they're not, uh, you know, uh, it's okay to invest in a small startup in the local community, but when you start to sell software in Kenya and Nigeria and UK yeah. and Sweden, there's, you know, some uh, risks that, you know, they're not comfortable with anymore. So, you know, both these lined up, and, you know, I'm glad I did that simply because when you simplify your cap table, uh, you know, you really have the, the capital market opens up significantly as well. So that's another thing to keep in mind as you bootstrap this. If there are early investors and founders, there are some inflection points in your journey uh, where one should uh, think about making offers to really buy back people who have been sitting on the cap table for a long time and you'll find yeah. that they, they actually really may embrace that opportunity as well. Yeah, and also uh, there are investors who specialize in these kinds of deals. If you get to a certain level of success and repeatability where investors do want to work with you, there are, there are certain funds that specialize in doing these kinds of transactions who would be willing to come in and buy out maybe co-founders, uh, give some liquidity to the founders, buy out early investors and, and simplify the cap table and set it up for further capitalization, further growth and so forth. So there are lots of options that open up if you, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, what we call it, call this strategy is bootstrap first, raise money later. And there are many different mm -hmm. variations of it. Um, you could be doing this Early on in your cycle, you could be doing it when you reach 5 million, 10 million in revenue. You could be doing it when you reach 20 million, 30 million in revenue. But the, the concept of bootstrap first, raise money later is a mantra that we believe in very strongly. And, and that's why I wanted to invite Parun here to uh, share his story and his journey with you so that you can, you know, learn from what his insights are. So Parun, thank you very much for 